All right, can you hear me? All right, well, um, my name is Nicole Parker, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and have a prayer and get started, if that's all right with you. I know there are still a few people trickling in, but that's fine. All right, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I know that each one of us is struggling to get closer to you. We love you, Lord. We want to experience your love. And I just pray that you will bless this room, bless every single person here, Lord. Help me to have the right words to speak that will apply to every single heart. Send your spirit to sustain us, to open our minds, drive away the forces of darkness, and make a wall of fire around this room, Lord, that your Holy Spirit may be the only one that can influence us. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for being willing to use even me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I love me, I love me not. This seminar is coming out of my own experience. Um, I know some of you pretty well, and some of you not so well, and some of you not at all. But the Lord knows every one of you, and I'm sure that you can find some applications of this message to your own experience. I'm going to start out by sharing just a little bit of who I am as a person. Um, growing up, I, I battled with depression as long as I can remember. It was just a part of my life growing up. I remember talking to my grandma when I was 12 years old about how much I wanted to die. I just didn't want to go on living. I didn't like being who I was. I hated being who I was. And just life for me was always a battle. It wasn't that I didn't have fun. You know, I, I love my sisters. I have three sisters, and we grew up out in the country. And in many ways, it was just, you know, heaven on earth. We, we played outside all the time in the creeks and the fields and streams all over the place nearby our, our house. I just loved to go out in the woods, and it was just my place to find peace and to be able to connect with God in some way. I grew up going to the Seventh-day Adventist church, Every week we went to church, I went to Adventist school, but somehow I could never get past that, that battle of not liking who I was. I felt like I was just so plain. How ordinary can you be? Brown hair and brown eyes. I couldn't do anything well. My sisters were so good at painting and singing and gymnastics and everything. And I just felt like I was a klutz. I felt like I was huge. I, uh, I was actually the tallest of my sisters, but I just felt so tall, even though I'm only 5'7". So I would walk hunched over, and they were so popular. They went to academy. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had any friends. So you understand how it is. I'm sure my perspective was somewhat biased by my own experience. But to me, I felt like I didn't have any talents, abilities. There was nothing special whatsoever about me. And you know, the problem is our culture is, is largely based on you have to be special. That's why self-esteem is such a big thing. Now, self-esteem isn't something you would have heard about a whole lot 30 years ago. It really started, at the self-esteem movement took off in about 1986. Some people in California, educators, had started realizing as they talked with young people, these kids don't feel loved. They don't feel good about themselves. And so they came up with the magical solution. Ah, if we can make them feel good about themselves, we'll be able to quell this, this epidemic of violence and teen pregnancy and all the, the drugs, all that. As long as they feel good about themselves, then everything will be great. 
That's a humanistic perspective, by the way. In case you notice, there's nothing about God in there. But that was the solution that these educators came up with, and California legislators caught on, and soon they started this whole movement. We're going to build self-esteem-based education. And so the American school system started pumping this out, especially in California. But of course, whatever starts in California goes all over, right? <laughs> so um, they established the California Task Force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility. And this was the beginning of the self-esteem solution to all of our problems. Now, self-esteem, if you simply define it, I looked up several definitions. In psychology, self-esteem reflects a person's overall evaluation or appraisal of his or her own worth or more simply, how you feel about yourself, a feeling of pride in yourself, or satisfaction with oneself. So you can see self-esteem is a very basic concept. This is what I'm talking about, how you feel about yourself being based on what other people think is you know, the, the important way to look at things. The popular perspective on self-esteem is you can never have too much self-esteem. This is, I, I have a shirt actually that I bought it and then I looked in the, the label and in the back of it and the label of it says, you can never have too much self-esteem. They actually named the company that. And I was like, wow, what a biblical perspective. <laughs> have you ever known anybody who had too much self-esteem? Come on now, have you known somebody who really thinks a lot of themselves? I dated a guy like this, okay? He really liked himself. It was really nauseating after a while. He told the same stories about himself all the time. How, you know, he was so good at skateboarding, and he used to have his hair down to here, and he used to have a ring in his nose and a ring in his ear and a chain between the two. And I was like, hey, I wouldn't want to get in a fight. But these were the things that he talked about. He had lots of self-esteem, but I'm afraid it was a little too much. You can have too much self-esteem, especially if it's based on things like that. Um, the problem with self-esteem in this perspective is that it has become the solution to the world's problems. Not the cross, not knowing God and having a relationship with him, it's having self-esteem. It's this humanistic perspective and you hear it everywhere. On Sesame Street, did you ever hear the song they sing, the most important person in the whole wide world is you and you hardly even know you? Um, these, are, these are the kinds of messages that kids are getting pumped with from the very earliest years. You know, the, the little train that could, there's not a mountain that we can, can't climb, there's not a river we can't make it over. Now, is that reality? With all the willpower in you, can you march out to the parking lot and pick up a car? There are some things you just can't do. And barring a miracle, there are some things that no person should even try to do. But in our world, we have this, we have this illusion, especially based on our culture, you know, Generations in the past did not have to deal with what we have to deal with. Have you, have you ever read Little House on the Prairie? Do you ever, you ever watch, or watch the movie, whatever? Yeah, Little House on the Prairie. They plant everything in the ground, work really hard, and then along would come a drought or a storm or something, sweep it all away. They woke up in the morning and they went out to see what the weather was like. If somebody had to go to town to get supplies, he went, and three days later he came back, right? Um, People didn't have the illusion of having control over their whole lives back then because they had control over so little. Now, we, you know, we feel a little chilly, so we go and adjust the thermostat, and wow, now I feel good. We get in the car, ooh, it's cold in here, but it's okay, because in 10 minutes it'll be warm, right? 
We have control. If I want to know where my husband is, I can call him on his cell phone. If he doesn't answer that, I'll call him on his work phone. And if I can't find him in either place, then I'll be fretting. I needed to ask him if he would bring home something for lunch. You know, control. We really think that we've got it. And this, this mindset has made us feel like we can be in control of our whole future, that we can take charge of our lives, and if I can just make the right choices, I can feel good about myself. And in addition to that, our culture tells us that we are special, we are unique, and that's why we're worth something. The MySpace generation, I put it in Chinese so you wouldn't be able to read that instead of listening to me. <laughs> the MySpace generation, you know, everybody's got to have their little MySpace with their, their layout, their design, or their blog telling all about what I'm like and the deep thoughts that I think. And there are the people who have great self-esteem who think, I don't want to miss blogging because all my followers are out there going, what a brilliant things is she going to come up with today? And then there's the opposite extreme where people go, why would I start a blog? Nothing happens in my life and nobody would care even if they did. That's, that's not what I'm holding up as the right standard. Stay with me here. I'm saying that this standard of measuring your worth as I am unique, I am special, is the wrong way of measuring your worth. Because when you have to say, I'm special, I'm different from everybody else, and this is why I'm valuable, then you start measuring other people's value based on whether they're as valuable as you, right? The, the country people, you know, the backpacker, I'm a backpacker, I'm an outdoorsy type, well, then I'm going to scoff at the people who don't want to go camping in the winter, right? I'm going to scoff at those city slickers. And meanwhile, the professional people who live in the city scoff at the cowboys who just think that they need to smell like sweat in order to be somebody. You know, everybody's got to step on somebody else in order to get higher in this mindset. And what about if you have to be special and unique to be worth something, what does that say about people who don't seem to have anything particularly special about them? The mentally disabled. Maybe what about an older person who doesn't seem to be special? They can't take care of themselves anymore. Things aren't going as well in their lives. You know, they, they have a hard time talking or feeding themselves, whatever it is. They don't seem special anymore, right? You notice when, uh, when you see ads on TV advertising new cars or whatever, they don't have an old bag up there talking about the beauties of this car. They get somebody hot and good-looking and young and, you know, because we measure value by those things. And like it or not, our advertising and everything else in life, we're immersed in this culture that says you are special if you're good-looking, if you're smart, if you are good at something, if you're popular, if you wear the right clothes. These are the measures of your worth, right? You've got to be special. And the world will tell you that the reason that you're depressed or you're addicted to something is, oh, you just have low self-esteem. Haven't you ever had anybody tell you that? I heard so much about how low my self-esteem was. I got sick of it growing up. Oh, you're just so insecure. My report cards, I went through those a couple of years ago. All my elementary school report cards, Nicole seeks undue attention. Nicole seems very insecure. Nicole is, is hungry for attention. Nicole seems to be struggling in this area or that area. There were always all these insecurity, self-esteem issues that people could see in me. But instead of pointing me to the cross, they pointed me to humanistic solutions. I remember having people tell me, you know, I had a teacher tell me, you need to write a list of things you like about yourself. This was when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And that was my handwriting exercise. And I said, why can't I write things that I don't like about myself? It was just my mindset. <clears throat> but 
that's why self-esteem is such a big thing because as our world has revolved more and more around this mindset, if I've got to be special, I've got to be unique, then our self-esteem is built on that. But that's a sandy foundation. It goes up and down with the tide. So when you feel good about yourself based on what other people think of you, how are you going to feel when all of a sudden other people don't seem to think of you well? You know, you wake up in the morning, you get your hair fixed just right. Wow, I look great. You're wearing that new outfit. You go out and the guy who you like smiles at you. Then you go in the cafeteria, you drop your whole tray and everybody laughs. Your life just went from great to horrible, right? That's not the way God wants us to be. But the world will tell you, you just need self-esteem. That's what will cure it. And in fact, the self-esteem is the third most popular topic in psychology literature. If you read your psychology books and the material out there, type in self-esteem on Google, oh, you'll get all kinds of things. In fact, I've gotten some great things, too, um, I'm going to share with you. But even I read in a parenting magazine the other day, it said you've got to get your kids involved in a lot of different things. Have them try music and gymnastics and all these other things so they can find something they're good at. They'll need that in order to build their self-esteem. And I thought of one of my friends who was a great musician, played the piano wonderfully, and she was planning to spend her life as a concert pianist. And then she had a snowboarding accident and injured her wrist. So that was the end of her piano career. She can still play, but she won't be able to uh, spend her life on that. It would have devastated her if that was what her self-esteem had been built on. But fortunately for her, she had a relationship with God that was far more important. She said, all right, the Lord's going to have me serve him in some other way then. And she was able to keep on going. But can you see the danger of that counsel? You know, there's, uh, there's just so many examples in the world of people who feel great about themselves for a little while, based on a certain circumstance, and then crash when those things fall apart. But how can you build your self-esteem? Um, looking up on the internet to find out, because that's how you find out anything in life, right? You Google it. <laughs> if you look up on the internet how to build your self-esteem, I thought some of you may need to build your self-esteem, so I have some good suggestions for you. Make affirming lists. This is what Google will tell you to do to build your self-esteem. An affirming list is when you sit down and make a list of things you like about yourself. Um, somehow I lack to see that uh, as really having substance. But you can create a celebratory scrapbook about yourself. Isn't this great? <laughs> sit down and make a scrapbook about yourself. I actually made one of these when I was a kid. I haven't seen it in 20 years. I don't know what it looks like now. But uh, yeah, make a celebratory scrapbook. I am into art and design. I like music. You know, I have all these different pages. Wouldn't that be great? Just imagine. And then you can go and sit down with your friends and say, look, here's a scrapbook about me. Want to find out about me? But if that doesn't satisfy you, here's another way you can uh, build your self-esteem. Draw up an affirmation sheet. I like Nicole because. And now you're going to let your friends and family be involved in building your self-esteem. You take it to them and you say, please write down things you like about me. I'm not even joking. This is on Google. Go look for it. Your, your affirmation sheet, you have all of the people that you know, who, only the ones who like you. Don't, don't give this to your younger brother. <laughs> and they'll write the things they like about you. And then it says, keep that list with you. And whenever you start feeling bad about yourself, pull it out. Whip out that baby and start reading about the things that are good about you. Talk about self-esteem. Wow, won't that solve all your problems? And the mutual complimenting exercise. I have to admit, this one was my favorite. You have to sit down with somebody you know, somebody who you like and who likes you. Be sure you choose your person carefully. And set a timer for five minutes, and they compliment you for five minutes. 
all about the things they like about you. Can you just see yourself doing this? <laughs> Are you starting to see what's wrong with the self-esteem movement? <laughs> and then, of course, I'm thinking, what if they run out at three and a half? That's going to really dent my self-esteem. And then, of course, you've got to set it for another five minutes, and you spend five minutes complimenting them. So these are the ways that you could build your self-esteem, according to the internet. <clears throat> but there are lots of other ways to build your self-esteem. Um, of course, this is one of the most common relationships, and of course, the more the merrier when what you're looking for is somebody to build up your self-esteem, right? Some people, they spend their lives flirting all the time. And do you know, I, I tend to talk to people right about the time they get married, because I tend to hang out with college students and young adults. So, I find sometimes, you know, they'll tell me. I haven't had a girl tell me just recently. She'd just gotten married, and she said, yeah, my husband uh, used to have a real problem with flirting, but now we're married. And I was like, oh, baby. <laughs> you don't know. Because when, when a person builds that habit of building their self-esteem on the affirmations of the opposite sex, that doesn't go away instantly, let me tell you. You don't suddenly find on the day you say, I do, that all your attraction and all your need for attention from the opposite sex goes away if that's what you built your sense of worth on. You're in deep trouble. Ultimately, the problem with this is that it's an idolatrous mentality. Whether or not you have two people that you're trying to flirt with or just one, if that person is the one that you're building your sense of worth on, your sense of worth is going to go up and down on the tide, number one. And number two, you won't be able to break off that relationship, even if you know it's damaging, even if you know it's idolatrous. Whenever, whenever we're in a situation where there's something other than Christ on the throne of our hearts, we are in deep trouble. So... Here is a, your final couple of punches from the, the internet. The truth is you can never like yourself too much. And if you want to be successful and happy in life, you need to be your own favorite person. How charming. So concentrate on your strengths, and in time they will expand and create new strengths. That's a pretty hollow counsel, don't you think? Here, I love this one too. A firm belief in your capabilities and self-confidence is the single most important asset you have as a person. Oh, I hope not. A simple way to bring about positive feelings within yourself are through affirmations. I feel great about myself. Tell yourself this every day. Every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. Boy, don't you want to tell yourself that every day? I love the last one. Everything goes right for me. Oh my, does everything go right for you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think these people were smoking something. <laughs> Maybe life goes perfectly for them, but it really doesn't go that way for me. This stuff is just lying to yourself. That's all it is, right? <laughs> and it's a pretty shaky foundation. If you're telling yourself, everything goes right for me, and then you drop that tray in the cafeteria saying, everything goes right for me, it's not going to solve a thing. It's only going to make you crash into depression. It doesn't go right for me. I must be stupid. There must be something wrong with me, right? Now, the keys to high self-esteem, um, according to the, the world's method of building your self-esteem, are these. Your self-concept is built upon, according to these things, your looks and style. I think this is an ideal illustration of what Solomon talked about when he said, everything under the sun is vanity. Look at this list. Looks and style, is that what your self-concept should be built upon? What about if you get in a car accident and your face gets burned? Where's your self-worth going to go? School or work, 
your health, your body and mind, your fitness? What if you can't seem to do really well in some things in school? Does that mean you're not worth as much as the person who gets straight A's? Not in God's eyes, but certainly in people's eyes. Relationships, money or possessions. Do you want your self-worth to be built on that? Other general influences, values or beliefs. These are the things that eruptingmind.com tells you that your sense of self should be built upon. And therefore, if those are the things that your sense of self is built upon, then it makes sense that you're going to have to work on those things in order to get yourself to feel better about yourself, right? And if your goal is feeling better, well, that's the place to go, right? Start working hard. Get really good at something. Then you'll be worth something, right? Is this a biblical foundation for understanding your own worth? No. What is our worth measured by? It's in light of two things. Creation. You are created in the image of God himself. That is the number one measure of your worth. And the number two measure of your worth is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He formed you in his own image. He breathed into you the breath of life. At that moment, you became worth more to him than all of the universe. And then, when you rebelled, you slap him in the face and say, I think I'm going to take care of myself from here on out. He says, I will die for you. That is the measure of your worth, not these foolish things. God loves us, and that is shown by creation and redemption. And these two things are the things that we must meditate on. But don't we need self-esteem? Doesn't the world tell you that? You know, it's really still hard to get this concept. Don't we need to have good self-esteem, though? What is wrong with the concept of self-esteem? This is from the book Psychology as Religion, pages 16 and 17. Lots is wrong with it, and it is fundamental in nature. There have been thousands of psychological studies on self-esteem. The bottom line is that there is no evidence that high self-esteem itself reliably causes anything. Even though there have been all these profound declarations by educators and lawmakers and everything else, we've got to help these young people feel good about themselves. Statistics show and studies show that self-esteem doesn't really seem to help. Is high self-esteem healthy? The self-esteem theory predicts that only those who feel good about themselves will do well, which is supposedly why all students need self-esteem. But feeling good about yourself may simply make you overconfident, narcissistic, that's self-centered, and unable to work hard. From Psychology as Religion, page 17. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it was an interesting study done. Students from eight different countries were assessed for their mathematical abilities. Um, and of the, all, all the eight countries, I don't even know which eight countries were involved, but the Koreans ranked the highest in mathematical ability, but the lowest in self-assessment. When they were asked, how do you think you do? Oh, I'm not really good at math. Oh, those were really tough tests. I, I, I don't think I did very well. But they did the very best. Guess who did the worst? The Americans did the worst and felt the best. When they were assessed, they said, no, man, I'm really good at math. Oh, those things, yeah, it wasn't that bad. I think I did really well on them. The Americans had been fed this self-esteem gospel until they felt like, you know, it doesn't matter whether I do well. I'm really good at this. And here they, they didn't even push themselves as hard. Now, I'm not recommending we all become like the Koreans. Sometimes Korean parents can really push their children, right? I'm, I'm not saying we all have to just be driven and say, unless you do well at something, you're not going to be worth anything. But I'm saying, isn't it interesting that the higher people think of themselves, sometimes the lower they actually push themselves 
yeah, I'm doing all right. I can go out and party and have a good time. I'll do okay in school, and I feel great about myself anyway, whether or not I do well in school. Um, our goal in life can't be to be good at something. But if that is our goal in life, and then we feel good about ourselves regardless, aren't we just going to make a mess of our lives? We've got to have something deeper than feeling good about ourselves driving us to succeed. We need to succeed in doing our best for the Lord and not for men, right? Isn't that how the Bible tells us to be driven? Um, there are some interesting links between high self-esteem and violence. In contrast to old beliefs, this is if you look up self-esteem in Wikipedia, you'll find this. Research indicates that violence is often linked to high self-esteem. Individuals who have inflated self-esteem are especially likely to run into ego threats because other people tend to find them less wonderful than they think they are. People who feel great about themselves sometimes have some real problems with self-esteem because other people deflate them, and that makes them angry. When you tell me that I'm not as beautiful as I assess myself to be, I may rightfully get very angry at you if I was evaluating my worth based on how I looked, right? Some of the <clears throat> people who measure the highest on self-esteem assessment charts are inner-city drug dealers. Haven't they done really well in a competitive environment? Wow, you know, they've got something to feel good about themselves for, right? Violent criminals often describe themselves as superior to others, as special elite persons who deserve preferential treatment. Many murders and assaults are committed in response to blows to self-esteem, such as insults and humiliation. You can also find that on Wikipedia, or at least you could a few days ago. You know how it is with Wikipedia. What's wrong with self-esteem? Here's, here's a summary. Worldly self-esteem is based on our own opinions or the opinions of others. You know, last night Justin was talking about um, how, what was his name, the, the guy who was fighting against slavery, Wilberforce. Yes, William Wilberforce fought against slavery. At the time, he was being teased and taunted all the time. People were telling him, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding. You really think that you can pull off something as big as this? This is a ridiculous idea, abolishing slavery. At the time, if he had based his sense of identity on what people thought of him, he would have abandoned this, this mission. But because he had a relationship with God, he realized it's more important what God thinks than what people thinks. So worldly self-esteem is based on people's opinions. Worldly self-esteem measures a human's worth by accomplishments, abilities, appearances, relationships, or other temporal pursuits. And last, worldly self-esteem is a false gospel, teaching us that we can find satisfying meaning and love in life apart from God. You know, when your self-esteem is based on these things, it's like pulling off the petals of a daisy, you know? That I love me, I love me not game. First you feel good, but the next one, you're going to feel bad. Then you'll feel good again, then you'll feel bad again, until eventually you're just like, I know I'm never going to actually have anything really solid and worthwhile in my life. I might as well just brace myself for the fact that I'm not worth anything, right? The ups and downs of basing what we believe about ourselves on people's opinions are, are the foundation of all these evils in life where people depend on themselves. They try everything within them to achieve, to accomplish, to become somebody, and yet they're always left unsatisfied, right? I remember when I was a swimming competitively at summer camp. <clears throat> and I thought, man, if only I can win this competition and become 
the best swimmer in the whole camp. And so we competed, one cabin against another, one person against another. I was taking lifeguarding class at the time too, so I was on, in tip-top shape. I was swimming like, I don't know, half a mile or something every night. And um, so I, I just finished swimming my uh, half a mile, and then I came out and did the competition. I was all warmed up, and I ended up winning. I ended up winning this fastest and strongest and all these other things, and I was the top. And I crawled out of the water, yes, you know. I even beat the camp ranger's son who swam all year, you know. I felt so great about myself. Then we all went to lunch, and that was that. And I was like, wait, wait, I, I, just, I just did something. I was just great, and that was the end of that, you know. And I felt so crestfallen, you know. That's all? I won, and I don't even feel any better about myself. That's the way it is with worldly measures of our worth. It goes up and down with the tide. A biblical perspective, in contrast, says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Philippians 2.3. Others better than themselves. So that means you should feel worthless, right? No, when we say we should esteem other better than ourselves, Remember what the law of God is based on? Two principles. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? When we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're ministering to every person, when we see in every other person the image of God, that's so different than if we're measuring our worth by what other people think of us. They measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise, the Bible says, right? When we measure ourselves in comparison to other people, we've got to step on them to get higher on the ladder of success. But when I see my worth measured by something completely outside of what's under the sun, as Solomon said, when my worth is not measured by anything that's down here under the sun, when my worth is measured infinitely in the light of the cross, in the light of a God who rules the entire universe with more love than I can ever understand, then I view myself in proper perspective, this little speck of dust who has rebelled against the Creator and whose Creator loves them infinitely in any way. When you view yourself that way, think of how you view the people around you. Instead of having to struggle to be higher than everybody else, we're equal with everybody else, right? I am just like everyone else of infinite worth in the light of the cross. I'm worth so much to God and so is she, and so is he, so is every person. Wow, how does that change the way you see that homeless person who smells really bad and is sitting on the sidewalk? How does that change the way you see the mentally disabled person that comes to church with you? They're of infinite value in the light of the cross, not in people's eyes sometimes. People measure by, well, they're not gonna make this substantial contribution to society. They're old and in the nursing home now, but God sees every person as of infinite worth somebody he would be willing to die for. You see, this is the secret to powerful evangelism. Instead of going out and saying, I want to find some people like me and make them come into the church, we see every person as priceless. And it will help us not to feel worthless. You know, I heard a sermon. <clears throat> Actually, somebody was telling me about the sermon that they had heard, that they were really upset because the pastor spent the whole time talking about how we should have no self-esteem. Self-esteem is bad, it's evil, it's pride. Therefore, we should all realize that we are trash and we are nothing. I thought, wow, what a mess. <laughs> when we stand up against the world's measure of our worth, 
of self-esteem and this self-esteem system, we must preach the gospel too. The gospel is self-worth. Now I'm using those two different terms, not because they, they're really that different. Esteem and worth aren't really terribly different concepts. But self-esteem is the term that the world uses to refer to measuring ourselves by ourselves and comparing ourselves among ourselves. That's the system that's being promoted in our American culture now. And I'm using self-worth as a different way to say what God really wants us to base our sense of worth on, his infinite love for us. So when I use these two concepts, these two different words, self-esteem and self-worth, understand what I'm talking about. God wants you to have self-worth. When I say you should not have self-esteem, I mean you should not base your opinion of yourself on comparing yourself to other people or on what you think you can accomplish. Your sense of worth must be built on the love that God has for you. Biblical self-worth is founded on the infinite, unconditional love of God. It is rock-solid and secure. It does not go up and down with the tide. And it develops as a result of a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ as our Creator and Redeemer. When you fall in love with Jesus and you see the incredible love that He has for you, you no longer have to be driven by, but I need somebody else to love me. I need to be good at something in order to feel like I'm worth something. I, I remember a couple that came to talk to me. They'd been dating for five years and really battling. Honestly, they, they didn't even like each other. But they couldn't break up because they needed each other. And when I talked with each one of them individually without the other person, the, the relationship was rocky, it was terrible. But when I'd say, okay, well, what do you guys think? How about splitting up? No, we can't do that. They needed each other, because not because they loved each other. You know, that's what I always hear. People say, no, I can't break up with him. I love him. He needs me. That's not love. You know what? That's selfishness. When, when anything other than Christ is on the throne of your heart, and by that I mean when there's something, when you wake up in the morning and there's somebody or something that is the primary thing that you live for, that thing is an idol. And when anything is on the throne of your heart instead of Christ, that thing is self. It's not the person that you love. It's not the sport that you love. It's what you love about what it does for you. With these two, for him it was control. He really needed to be in control. And so he found a girl who needed him and made her even needier. Eventually, she even needed him to, he would, he would put money into an envelope for her and tell her, this is how much you're going to spend on food this week. You need to spend all of it. If you don't spend all of this money on food and eat that food, I'm going to take the money back because she was trying to save money, you know, and she just couldn't force herself to eat. So he was helping her, right? He was going to help her. He was going to pull her through. He was going to be her knight in shining armor. It was all out of love for her, right? But strangely, when she didn't appreciate his efforts to control her, when she would say, you know what, I'm actually getting healthier now. I think I can take care of myself. I think I want to do some things by myself without you. He would erupt in rage. Or when she would actually express resentment that he was always, you know, calling her and making sure she was going to do this, making sure she was going to bed, making sure she was going to get everything done that she needed to do. And when she would get angry at him, he would get enraged at her. How dare you? 
How dare you not appreciate all that I've done for you, all that I'm doing for you. Without me, you would not have been able to survive this long. And she'd relax back into, oh, yes, you're right. I don't know how I would have survived. You're, you're so wonderful. You're so loving. That's what he needed. That's what he wanted. It wasn't love for her. And for her, she needed that appreciation. She needed somebody to tell her that she was worth something. She needed somebody to make her feel beautiful and attractive. And now, when he was starting to criticize her, she felt just shrunk. She felt worthless. If he doesn't think that I'm perfect, what can I do? It wasn't him that she was in love with. It was what he did for her. Well, eventually, she became healthy enough that they were able to break it off. And he said, as, as they broke up, he said, wow, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I told him, you know, there are three paths here. Between, standing between, it's as if you two are standing on one side of a mountain, and you have agreed you want to get to the other side. Now, there are three ways you can get there. One of them, you can stay together and try not breaking up and try getting to the other side of the mountain together. But that means navigating through a really tough, rocky forest, shackled together at the wrist and the ankle. You're going to hurt each other a lot. You're going to impede each other's progress. It's going to take a lot longer, and it's going to be a very painful process. And there's no guarantee you're going to make it to the other side of that mountain. I said, then there's option two. You can say to each other, let's break it off and say six months from now or something. We'll see each other again. Then we'll talk. We're not going to talk between now. We're going to go on our own and see if we can make it to the other side of the mountain in six months. The mountain being they needed to build a relationship with God, become Christ-centered instead of being self-centered. So I said, then there's the third option. You can say, let's break it off now. No six-month time limit. I'm gone. I just want to be free. I just want to be out. And if ever the Lord brings us back together, well, that's the Lord's business. And he said, that's the one I really want. I want to be free. I want to be out of this. And she said, that sounds good to me too. All right, so they did it. And she said, I'm going to be fine. He said, oh, I'm worried about her. I don't know if she's going to make it. I'll be fine, but I don't know about her. I said, you know, I think it's going to be a lot harder on you than you think. And she did fine because she was starting to build that relationship with God already. Within a couple of months, she got rebaptized. She took off spiritually when she finally broke those shackles. He crashed. He began texting her pleading for her just to go for a walk with him on Sabbath afternoon, just to go out to eat with him, just to do something. And she'd call me, what do I do? He's texting me. I said, send him a Bible verse. That's it. Tell him, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. <laughs> Whatever it is he needs, he needs Christ, and you're not going to help him. And the more that you try to take his hand to bring him to Christ, the more he's just going to cling to you. So that's what she did. It was tough for him. Within a few months, he was coming to my house crying. He didn't know how he was going to cope. But now that she was finally out of his life, she was progressing, and he had to hit rock bottom, and then he started progressing. Recently, I talked with him, and he said, Wow, you know, I've just been, I sit down to have my devotions. I have a roll of toilet paper and a plastic bag for everything that I blow my nose and wipe my eyes on and put it in there. I've got my Bible and my computer with e-sword. It's just incredible. I can't believe this stuff that's in the Bible. Look what the Bible says. And he shared with me passage after passage that were just coming alive to him. Growing up in the church, being a kid who always, you know, knew that God was there and that God loved him, it didn't get through to him because of the other issues going on in his life, the things that were shouting to him, God doesn't love you. We're going to be getting into that stuff this afternoon. How do we overcome 
abuse, neglect, the problems that hit us because of other people's sins against us or because of our own sins, our own mistakes that make us discouraged and feel like God could never use somebody like me. And we're going to talk about the, that this afternoon and how God wants to help us to find the, the, the courage to break those chains that bind. For him, it was a magical process and still is. Well, we have a few more minutes here. All right, let me keep racing then. <clears throat> you know, biblical self-worth will help you because as you recognize your inadequacies, and this is what the gospel does, when you confront yourself in the word of God, it can be very discouraging. You realize, whoa, I'm making a total mess of this situation. I'm making a total mess of that situation. That can be really discouraging. That's why you need to have a solid foundation of understanding your worth in the light of the cross. You can go, wow, even when I'm making such a mess of my life, he loves me so infinitely. What does that do for your relationship with God when you realize, man, I'm a mess. I had no idea what a mess I was, and yet you love me like this. That increases our love for him, right? Only by love is love awakened. As we behold the love of God for us, it makes us go, wow, I love you too. I can't believe you love me like that. I'm so amazed at your incredible love for someone like me. You know, God, God wants us to base our sense of worth on him. The, the Bible deals with this concept. Many people think, well, but the Bible doesn't really talk about self-esteem. Well, it does. Um, if you look at some of the stories, there are so many stories. I just chose a couple of here to illustrate. What about the story of Samson? Did Samson have high self-esteem or low self-esteem? Samson had very high self-esteem. And I'm sorry to say, Samson's self-esteem was not built on having a, a real relationship with God. You see, Samson was like many of us. He thought he could be in control of his life because he was so strong. He had it all together. Anything that came at him, ugh, he, could, he could wrestle it. He could make it. He didn't need God. And therefore, he didn't cry out to God. Samson's great sin was the sin of self-reliance. And I think if we could pick one sin that is the sin of this age, of this earth, it's self-reliance. You can call it um, addiction, pornography. There are lots of things that are fruits of self-reliance. But the bottom line is, so often I see when somebody comes up against temptation, they say, you know, I can handle it. I see this all the time. Young people come to me and they're like, well, you know, I just, I know I really shouldn't be dating this guy and he's not Adventist, but, you know, the Lord just gave me the most amazing miracles that showed me that we should be together. And, you know, he's starting to really get interested in spiritual things. Just the other day, he asked me what I read for devotions. I'm like, wow, self-reliance. If I came to you and I said, you know, I know what the Bible says about Jesus coming and being, every eye will see him and all that, but you won't believe the most miraculous experience I had the other day. I opened my door and Jesus was standing on my doorstep and he came in and he told me that that stuff in the Bible isn't really true, that he was the one I should trust. Isn't this wonderful? I know what the Bible says, but I feel in my heart that this is right. And you won't believe the miraculous signs that confirm that I'm really right in doing this instead of following the word of God. What would you say to me? Should I believe my feelings or miracles instead of the word of God? No, never. But when it comes to relationships, 
And when I feel really good about myself because this guy likes me, then suddenly everything fades into insignificance. It's like, yeah, I know the Bible says I shouldn't be dating somebody who's an unbeliever. But wow, you wouldn't believe the miracles that are happening between the two of us. You wouldn't believe. And I'm not saying that God can't work in situations like that. And that he doesn't, even when people have married for the wrong reasons and the wrong way, that God can't still bring some good. But until you've actually been in that situation, you have no idea the heartache that comes as a result of it. And what a risk you're taking. You know, I, I live at Southern. And I watch as I walk around campus sometimes. These young people slobbering all over each other. They're, you know, they're so in love. They're clinging to one another as they go into the cafeteria. And I'm like, oh, if you only knew 10 years from now. Because 10 years ago, it was my friends doing that. And now, those friends are divorced, jaded, left the church. God wasn't there with me. I thought he was leading me together with this person because I prayed really hard and it seemed like he was leading and I felt peace about it and so we got married and then he started beating me. What kind of way of figuring out God's life plan for you is that? We can trust the word of God. We don't have to trust our feelings. But you see, self-reliance is the sin of the age. And Samson is an excellent example of it. Samson had this great self-esteem. He thought he could handle whatever came at him. And whenever we have that attitude, I know I can handle it. I can guarantee you, you're headed for destruction. When people play with temptation, it's okay for me to, you know, go somewhere alone late at night with this person of the opposite sex because nothing would happen between us. We're just friends. Or, you know, we've decided, we've sat down together and talked about what we'll never do. And since we know that we're never going to go all the way, it's okay for us to make out a little bit. We've decided that that's okay. Don't play with the devil. He's bigger than you. When you mess with temptation, when you go into it with self-reliance, you'll always go farther than you think you will. And you'll always regret it. But self-reliance comes from high self-esteem, right? When you're told you can re rely on yourself. There's not a mountain that you can't climb. There's not a river you can't make it over. Well, you may find out the hard way. Samson did. And when Samson finally came back to God humbled, realizing that power was not for me, that was God working in me. And now, if I appeal to him humbly, he might be able to work through me again. Then the power was unleashed. Once Samson had low self-esteem, he was able to look to God and understand God's plan for his life. And while he couldn't make up for all the mistakes that he had made while he was self-reliant, God was able to still use him. What about King Saul? At the beginning, he did have low self-esteem. When Samuel called him, he said, Me? Oh, you don't understand. I, you, God couldn't want somebody like me. I'm, I'm just the least, you know. And God says, I know, but I can use you. King Saul didn't think that he was all that at the beginning. But then later on, after he had become king, he realized, wow, you know, I can say to a thousand men, go do this, and they do it. Oh, I'm something. And because he was big and strong and felt good about himself, he became self-reliant. He built high self-esteem, and God could no longer use him. Right? Can you imagine? God says through the prophet, wait until I get there to do the sacrifice. And you go, well, I know God said that, but, you know, I'm the king. Who's God to tell the king what to do? Right? That's self-esteem, self-reliance, pride. And, you know, self-esteem is really just another newfangled term for the very old-fashioned term in the Bible, pride. Thinking that I'm actually pretty special. I'm actually pretty strong. I'm better than other people. 
I am capable of doing what thousands of generations couldn't do. You know, I can say no to sexual temptation, even though I'm playing with temptation and going farther and farther. Oh, but I'll never go all the way because, you know, don't kid yourself. That's all I can say. Self-reliance is the sin, a root sin, that leads to a thousand different fruit sins. And people will come to me and say, oh, man, I just feel so terrible. My boyfriend and I keep falling. I'm saying, okay, well, why don't you stop going out alone together? Well, we couldn't do that. When will we spend time together? Well, there are ways. But if you really want, you can keep relying on yourself and keep on falling and wait until you actually learn the lesson. Hopefully not the very hard way. So when God leads a person to get rid of their self-esteem, then they can really rely on him instead of themselves, and he can do great things through them. And in the other way around, too, when a person loses their reliance on God, they will start relying more and more on themselves. And the more we rely on ourselves, the less God can do through us. So reversing self-esteem led to reversing reliance on God versus self for both Saul and Samson. But you know, the Bible, every single story in the Bible illustrates the principles of God's love. But when we look to every other example, none of them are as great as Christ. So let's look at Christ and his view of his worth. In the heart of Christ, where reigned perfect harmony with God, there was perfect peace. He was never elated by applause, nor dejected by censure or disappointment. The Desire of Ages, page 330. Can you imagine being like that? If you get called in at work or at school and told, you know, you've been making a real mess of things. And you're like, but I, I really didn't. But they say, it's, it's too bad. We're docking your grade. We're docking your pay. Whatever it is that you're going to get a consequence because you are not up to par. Can you imagine how that feels? Or what about if somebody tells you, man, I was just amazed at whatever it is that you just did. You're a phenomenal person. Will it not, you know, chink you up just a little bit? You see, the more that we rely on other people's opinions of us, the less we rely on God's opinion of us. But the solution is not, okay, I'm not going to rely on anybody. I'm not going to rely on anybody. The solution is relying on Christ. You know, in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a, a flame that's burning, and the devil is trying to pour water on the flame and put it out. He, he's... He's enraged that this flame in the Christian's heart will not go out. And Christian is wondering, why is this? You know, why does the flame not go out when water is being poured on it constantly? Then the interpreter takes him behind the wall where the fire is coming from and shows him that there's a secret uh, passageway of oil. The oil is coming in to feed the flame so that the water can't put it out. This is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to continue feeding our sense of worth, our sense of identity, through our time with him every day, our devotional time, walking with him, talking with him, listening to him. He wants to keep pouring that oil into our hearts so that we can resist the assaults of the devil. It's a moment-by-moment -moment process. And it's not something that we can get just by having that moment-by-moment -moment daily time because God knows. You know, there are a lot of things that come up. You get sick, you sleep in, things happen. Sometimes you don't get that devotional time as regularly as you need to. And while I'm not excusing missing your devotional time, God knew we needed something more than that, and he gave us the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to mow the lawn and pay the bills. Why is it that God says, I'm not going to let them go play secular games. They're not going to be able to go play basketball. Now I'm going to test their loyalty to me. 
Anything that God takes from us, he takes away because he knows it's not going to be a blessing to us. And he gives us something better in its place. The Sabbath is a day that we are, check this out, the, the Sabbath is a day we're supposed to meditate on two things. In Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, if you look it up, you'll see it says, why are we supposed to keep the Sabbath for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, right? And rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we're supposed to keep the Sabbath and meditate on creation, which is the first measure of our worth. God's infinite love for us is shown in the fact that he created us in his image. And the moment he created us, we were of infinite value to him. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where it restates the Ten Commandments, there's a different reason given for keeping the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5, it says, Because I led you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm, therefore the Lord commanded them to keep the Sabbath day. Now why is that? We haven't been delivered from Egypt ourselves, have we? Or have we? Any person who's been converted has been delivered from Egypt. We have been set free from the chains of slavery to sin. That's redemption. So God wants us to spend the Sabbath meditating on two things, creation and redemption, which happen to be the two measures of our worth. Isn't it amazing that God has the antidote for the need for self-esteem? In his word, in the Sabbath, God has given us one day out of the week that he wants us to especially meditate on how much he loves us based on two solid demonstrations of his love for us. He created us in his image. He redeemed us with his blood. And when we meditate on those things, we no longer have this craving to be worth something. We don't need somebody else to come in and say, wow, you're amazing. Look at how you do this. You look so beautiful today. Wow, you want to go out with me tonight? We don't need those things anymore. And when those, things, those temptations come to us, we see them for what they are. We go, you know, that would be nice but I'm waiting for the Lord to bring the right person to me. We, and instead of it being this, oh, I so am dying, but I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. The Lord is satisfying our heart. That oil is feeding the flame within our hearts so that we can see these other things for what they really are, distractions. When Christ is on the throne of our hearts, when he is the center of our lives, when we wake up in the morning and we're just exulting in his love for us, wow, you love me, me. With this face that I look at in the mirror that has acne, you still love me. You think I'm beautiful. Oh, I love you. I love you. It doesn't matter whether you have a good hair day or a bad hair day in God's eyes. He made your hair. He knows what you'd look like without it. <laughs> it's okay. He sees us at our worst, not just on the outside, but on the inside. So bad that if we saw what we're like the way that he sees what we're like, we would be totally devastated. We would lose all hope. Oh, no, look at those evil motives I have for even the good things that I do. But God sees us and he says, wow, she's so beautiful. He's so amazing. I just love them so much. When we meditate on that love that God has for us, we find the antidote, the solution for that thirsty heart, that thirsty soul that the world can never satisfy. We're going to talk in a, the next presentation about that solution. How do you really drink from the well that truly satisfies, from the living water, so that you're not left thirsty, empty, broken. Because I think this is, this is not just something that you can just say, okay, I think I'm going to go spend an hour reading the Bible. I spent a lot of hours reading the Bible that left me still thirsty, empty, and broken. 
I want to talk to you about how you can really internalize this. Do you know, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John 2, 23 through 25. This is a short passage that I think perfectly illustrates how Jesus overcame the same temptations that you and I face. Wasn't he tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin? It's not a sin to be thirsty. Jesus was thirsty too. It's a sin to go to something else to satisfy us, the broken cisterns of the world. John 2, 23 through 25 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when he saw the miracles which he did. Can you imagine what it would be like to do miracles? And everybody's following you going, wow. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. And if you look up the, the Greek word for that, the commit himself unto them, it is trust them or depend upon them. Jesus did not depend upon those people who were following him because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know, God knows what's in our fickle hearts, and he loves us anyway. Jesus was able to build his identity and his sense of worth on the Father's love for him, so that he wasn't a victim of the vicissitudes of what people thought of him. When the Pharisees bashed him, he was able to shrug it off. When other people praised him, he was able to say, great, but, you know, I've got my feet on the ground. This is the secret of why Jesus was who he was, because his sense of worth was based on the Father's love for him. If you look in Luke chapter 22, go to Luke chapter 22, um, verses 24 through 27. This is where it talks about the disciples. And I'm not going to read the entire passage because we're running out of time. But the disciples have been talking on the way to Jerusalem. This is, they're on the way to the cross. Jesus has been telling them and telling them, look, I'm going to die, be crucified, I'm going to be resurrected the third day. And they're going, that's great. But anyway, back to fighting over who's going to be at your right and left hand. They had their goal. Was Christ the center of their lives? Christ was not on the throne of their hearts. And whenever Christ is not on the throne of your heart, self will be on the throne of your heart. They may have thought, man, we're serving Christ. I want so much to be right there with him, helping him all the way. But it was really about self. So when Jesus asked them, you know, what were you talking about on the way? The disciples didn't want to answer. There was a strife among them, Luke chapter 22, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And Jesus had some words for them. He talked to them about, now yeah, that's, that's the way it is in the world, but ye shall not be so. For he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. I am among you as he that serveth. Turn to John 13, verses 3 through 5. This is at the Last Supper, as Jesus is about to make the ultimate sacrifice for these disciples who are still bickering about who is the greatest. He's just confronted them. He's just said to them, what were you guys talking about on the way? You were talking about who's going to be the greatest, right? Remember? That isn't what it's about. Remember, if you want to be like me, you're going to have to seek the lowest place instead of the highest place. Uh-huh, yeah, whatever you say. They go right back to it. And they all sit down in the room, and Jesus waited for a little while to see, you know, is anybody going to serve and if the disciples had only known that thousands of years later people were going to be reading about it, they all would have been clamoring to be the one, right? <laughs> but for the wrong reason. It was all for the wrong reason. 
They wanted to be exalted. And so all of them were sitting there going, well, I'm not going to go around and wash everybody's feet. That's basically admitting that I'm not fit to be on the right hand or the left hand of Christ. That's admitting I'm going to be lucky to be a gatekeeper when the kingdom finally is, is set up. So Jesus, you look in John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, where was Jesus' sense of worth based on? Was it on what people thought of him or was it on his relationship with his Father? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. The reason Jesus could serve like that is because he was emptied of pride, of self-esteem, of worrying about other people's opinions of him or of what he could accomplish on this earth. It wasn't, I've got, to, I've got to make it to as many towns as possible, get as many people as possible to know who I am. It wasn't about the autograph books. He just wanted to do whatever his father called him to do. Faithfulness to what God called him to do was all that mattered. Didn't matter what people thought of him. Didn't matter what his outward accomplishments were. And because of that, he was able to take that towel and gird himself. Because of his love for his father and his deep relationship with his father, everything else in life came into perspective. And this is what he wants to do for you and me. He wants us to be the same. So that if we want to have the mind of Christ, this is the secret to having it. The mind of Christ can only happen when we no longer have to clamber to be at the top so that we'll be worth something when we can rest in the love that God has for us, the sense of worth that comes from knowing him, from loving him, from building that deep relationship with him, then everything else in life falls into perspective. We can realize, okay, it's all right. doesn't matter whether people think I did well. doesn't matter whether I look good. All that matters is serving God faithfully. And when our love relationship with him is built like that, wow, everything else in life becomes beautiful because it's all a matter of serving the way that Jesus served. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, more than anything, we just want to have the mind of Christ. Empty us of self, Lord, and fill us with your spirit. And thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, we have 15 minutes to relax and get a drink and things like that. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.